The Senate will conduct a trial of the impeachment of Donald Trump. It will be a full trial. It will be a fair trial. But make no mistake, there will be a trial, and when that trial ends, senators will have to decide if they believe Donald John, Donald John Trump incited the erection, insurrection <laughs> against the United States. Come on, Chuck. Did he really say that? He really said that. Oh, come on, Chuck. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. <laughs> That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Erection. And I'm wondering <laughs> how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... <laughs> says me from bradblog.com. I'm sorry, I can't get Chuck Schumer's erection out of my mind. Hey, oh boy. welcome to the Bradcast. Uh, Joe Biden today continued to sign his flurry of executive orders. On Tuesday, they focused on racial equity and systemic racism. Uh, one measure, for example, ordered the Department of Justice to end its reliance on private prisons and to acknowledge the central role government has played in implementing discriminatory housing policies. Uh, On that uh, prisons bit, you may recall that at the very end of the Obama administration, an order, and it was great, it was big news at the time, big good news at the time, an order was issued by the Department of Justice to begin doing away with private federal prisons. Remember that? Well, I don't know if you remember, but that order was issued by someone at the time named Sally Yates. Mm, I did not know that. Yeah, it was first I had seen her name at that time. Uh, Of course, she would later on be fired by Donald Trump for warning him that uh, that then National Security Advisor Michael Flynn uh, had been compromised by Russia after lying to the FBI about his conversations Uh, With them before the inauguration, he was eventually uh, pleaded guilty to that, for which Donald Trump um, pardoned Michael Flynn. Uh, Trump had rolled back that order to do with uh, to do away with the uh, private federal prisons 
Joe Biden now is putting those orders back in place, saying that, quote, this is the first step to stop corporations from profiting off of incarceration at privately managed facilities holding some 14,000 federal inmates, though it should be noted, like Yates's order, it does not end the federal government's reliance on privately run immigration detention centers. Really? Yeah. Uh, don't know why. They didn't do it last time. They're not doing it for now anyway, this time either. Uh, the latest executive actions come after Joe Biden signed an order Monday reversing a Trump-era Pentagon policy that largely barred transgender people from serving in the military. That was another order that had then been reversed by Donald Trump, only to now be reversed again by Joe Biden. Yes, uh, erections have consequences. <laughs> oh, golly. Uh, oh, Bi <laughs> Biden also, uh, sorry. Hi, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Hi. Are you enjoying the show so far? <laughs> it's great. Okay. Uh, Biden also announced that he was ordering 200 more vaccine doses to get everyone in the nation vaccinated by summer. I'm surprised that that has to be done. You mean we didn't already have plans to vaccinate everyone? Surprise! On Monday, Biden's selection for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the first woman to hold that job, was approved by the U.S. Senate, and she was sworn in today by the nation's first vice uh, female vice president, Kamala Harris. And Biden's nominee for Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, was finally confirmed by the Senate today as well. And speaking of the Senate and those articles of impeachment, well, the article of impeachment for Donald Trump for his uh, second Senate impeachment trial. That article was delivered by the U.S. House impeachment managers to the U.S. Senate on Monday night. And on Tuesday, senators were formally sworn in as, quote, Impartial jurors, I'm sure they will be, for the uh, historic second impeachment trial of a U.S. president, even though the trial itself uh, will not occur now for about two weeks, thanks to an agreement between the new majority leader Chuck Schumer and now minority leader, leader Mitch McConnell. Nonetheless, a majority of Republicans rallied against trying Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump for incitement of insurrection with just five members of his party joining Democrats in voting to go forward with the impeachment trial in the Senate. The 55 to 45 vote cleared the way for Trump's second impeachment trial. It narrowly killed a Republican effort to dismiss the charge as unconstitutional on the claim that even though it has been done in the past, holding an impeachment trial after the official in question has left office is somehow unconstitutional. That did not fly, but the fact that only five Republicans were willing to vote against the measure suggests that Democrats may have a difficult time finding the 17 Republican senators that they would need to convict Trump during the trial which will now begin uh, the week of February 8th. And can we just talk about how what bad faith this GOP Senate vote was? You know, because McConnell delayed. He blocked the Senate from even considering starting the trial while Trump was still in office when he was impeached. Yeah. And McConnell intentionally waited until after Trump was out of office so he could then argue, well, he's out of office now. We couldn't possibly impeach him now. 
For the record, uh, the good faith Republicans, at least those who voted against the uh, the measure to toss out this uh, trial entirely, the, the measure, by the way, was introduced by the pretend libertarian constitutionalist <laughs> Rand Paul. Those who voted against it in the on the Republican side, Senators Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney of Utah, Ben Sass of Nebraska, and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. All five had previously said they were open to hearing the impeachment case. Even Mitch McConnell, who previously said that Trump provoked, quote, provoked the MAGA mob attack on the U.S. Capitol, even McConnell voted to try and kill the impeachment trial. Uh, more on that, I suspect, uh, in the days ahead. Uh, Murkowski said, My review of it has led me to conclude it is constitutional in recognizing impeachment is not solely about removing a president. It is also a matter of political consequences. She called uh, Donald Trump's actions unlawful. But I guess if you do something unlawful in the very last days of your presidency, you get to get away with it under Rand Paul's reading of the Constitution. Because, hey, now you're out of office. You can't be held accountable with uh, impeachment. So we've got two weeks until that trial begins. I suspect we'll have time to talk more about all of this in the days ahead. Uh, and more, by the way, on the U.S. Capitol attack in a moment. But shortly after we got off air on our previous show, Mitch McConnell caved in the first Senate standoff of the new session over the power-sharing resolution for the 50-50 split in the U.S. Senate, where Democrats now hold the majority thanks to the Vice President Kamala Harris with the tie-breaking vote as Senate President. Schumer claimed victory on Monday night after McConnell finally dropped his demand that Democrats commit to preserving the filibuster. A uh, spokesperson for Schumer said, we're glad Senator McConnell threw in the towel and gave up on his ridiculous demand. We look forward to organizing the Senate under Democratic control and start getting big, bold things done for the American people. After several days of refusing to move forward with the resolution and hamstringing the process of transferring majority power to Senate Democrats, which, by the way, left Republicans in charge of committees all this time, uh, until now, <laughs> even though they were in the minority, uh, McConnell finally relented on Monday after Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona publicly pledged to keep the filibuster, which is the absurdly undemocratic procedure in an already undemocratic legislative chamber that would uh, require Democrats to find 60 votes in order to advance most legislation instead of being able to rely on a simple majority. For now, the legislative filibuster therefore stays in place, though for how long is unknown. You will recall that when Republicans couldn't get their Supreme Court picks uh, through, McConnell simply blew up the filibuster. Didn't care about it at all. He did away with it to further pack his already stolen majority on the highest court in the land for three separate Supreme Court nominations under Donald Trump. Of course, the filibuster is only one of the wildly undemocratic elements of the U.S. Senate, where even though tens of millions of more votes were cast for Democrats in the Senate, 
Republicans are still somehow able to hold 50% of the seats. Go figure. We will speak shortly with my guest about that and about the way that Republican state legislators are now citing Donald Trump's phony voter fraud claims in the 2020 presidential election to try to adopt even more restrictive voting laws at the state level and how uh, and if Democrats in Congress may be able to counter that with their massive campaign elections and ethics reform bill called H.R. 1, the For the People Act. Uh, for now, for all of the GOP claims that they are interested in unity in the new Congress, McConnell threatened, quote, immediate chaos if Democrats move to dismantle the filibuster. He said, quote, destroying the filibuster. And he said this, you know, after having done it for justices nominated to the top court in the land during the previous administration, destroying the filibuster would drain comity and consent from this body to a degree that would be unparalleled in living memory. I guess he has a short memory. He made those comments on the floor, suggesting that Republicans could refuse to show up for floor votes at all, denying the 51 members needed to have a quorum required to do business. There's that unity for you. If this uh, majority went scorched earth, McConnell said, this body would grind to a halt like we have never seen. <sighs> But uh, before I get to my guest today, uh, there was a story that broke late Friday night from The Washington Post that had a point in it that I do not want to uh, f see fall into the memory hole here because I have not heard much about this since the story came out. And it was kind of buried. Here's the lead from The Post on Friday night. Self-styled militia members from Virginia, Ohio, and other states made plans to storm the U.S. Capitol days in advance of the January 6th attack and then communicated in real time as they breached the building on opposite sides and talked about hunting for lawmakers, according to court documents that were filed last week by the Department of Justice. While authorities have charged more than 100 uh, individuals in the riot, details in the new allegations against three U.S. military veterans offer a disturbing look at what they allegedly said to one another before, during, and after the attack. Statements that indicate a degree of preparation and determination to rush deep into the halls and tunnels of Congress to make citizens' arrests quote-unquote, citizens' arrests of elected officials. That was their plan. Now, they were talking to each other, apparently, via an app called Zello, uh, this according to the FBI, uh, which uh, somehow the FBI was able to obtain recordings of those conversations. And uh, more than the fact that these were military veterans planning this attack on the United States government itself, I'm most disturbed by what the Post's coverage on Friday night, if you read all the way down to it, suggests that these people appeared to have an insider working with them, someone inside of Congress during the insurrection. Now, whether that was a Congress member or a staffer, I don't know. But one of those charged 
uh, is apparently one of the leaders of the Oath Keepers uh, extremist group, a guy by the name of Thomas Edward Caldwell, 66 years old. He uh, alleging that the uh, they charged him, alleging that uh, this Navy veteran had helped to organize a ring of dozens who coordinated their movements as they, quote, stormed the castle to disrupt the confirmation of President then President elect Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. According to these uh, documents, the court documents that they have transcripts of their conversations, co-defendant Jessica Watkins, a 38 year old Army veteran, said while the breach was underway, quote, we have about 30 to 40 of us. We are sticking together and sticking to the plan. Arrest this assembly. We have probable cause for acts of treason. Election fraud, a man replied, according to audio recordings of communications between Watkins and others during the incursion. Uh, A man responds, quote, this is everything we effing trained for, said one unidentified man in the conversation. But here's the part that troubles me. (laughs) All of that's quite troubling. But oh, yeah. uh, In the charging papers, the FBI said that during the riot, Caldwell received Facebook messages from unspecified senders updating him of the location of lawmakers inside the Capitol when he posted a one word message, quote, inside. He received exhortations and directions describing tunnels and doors and hallways, according to the FBI. Some messages included, quote, All legislators are down in the tunnels, three floors down. And, quote, go through back house chamber doors facing left, down hallway, down steps. That's kind of specific. You know, these lawmakers had been hustled down into, uh, uh, you know, secure locations when all of this happened. And someone knew enough to say, you know, take a left to go down the back uh, through the chamber doors, left down the hallway, down the steps. Another message read, all members are in the tunnels under Capitol. Seal them in. Turn on gas. So that's a little creepy. Uh, Who would know those details if not someone on the inside? Uh, it's it's very creepy, uh, and I suspect, or at least I hope, in the next two weeks, as uh, Trump awaits his second impeachment trial, that we will learn more about this. It seems Trump was not the only uh, insider who incited an insurrection on January 6th. Or an erection, oh, as golly. Chuck Schumer would say. <laughs> well, it's obviously a very um, very troubling um, information there. And I, I know. hope that the FBI is able to uh, conduct the investigation such that we get to find out who those people that were communicating those directions to them, who those people actually are. Yeah, and I'm surprised that we've heard so little about that. So I just kind of wanted to point that out. Uh, Don't let it get lost down the memory exactly. hole. Exactly. Someone on the inside knew exactly where all these lawmakers were and was willing to tell these people exactly how to get there and how to seal them in and then, don't know what this means, turn on gas. Okie dokie. Anyway, in the meantime, uh, why let a good 
insurrection, you're welcome, <laughs> uh, at the U.S. Capitol over phony voter fraud claims go to waste. Republican legislators around the country certainly are not doing so. In fact, they're using this as an opportunity to make voting more difficult under the premise that all of that non-existent voter fraud needs to be stopped. Except with very real legislative measures that make it more difficult for certain voters to vote because apparently doing things that voters actually like and want, well, that's more difficult for Republicans than lying to them about voter fraud and using that lie to prevent Democrats from being able to vote at all. David Daly of Fair Vote, who wrote the book on unrigging our elections, he joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the broadcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. The beat goes on. Yes, it do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As David Daly writes this week at Boston Globe, sometimes the threat to democracy takes the form of a violent mob incited by the president himself ransacking the halls of government, invading the floors of the U.S. House and Senate, and disrupting the constitutionally mandated electoral college count. Other times, democracy can be subverted through the legal and political process by lawmakers who assert groundless claims of voter fraud and stolen elections, support lawsuits that seek to nullify legitimate election results, and back efforts in Congress not to certify electors from Arizona and Pennsylvania when the people's will differs from their own. Amped up by lies about voter fraud and urged by their leaders to stop the steal, Daily writes, the first mob staged a bloody insurrection in which five people died. The second mob, 139 Republican members of the U.S. House, a majority of the caucus, filed past bullet holes and broken glass and voted to endorse the big lie that those states somehow had been stolen from Donald Trump. Glass can be replaced, security enhanced, he writes, but what if the more dangerous threat to our nation comes from the mob that would legally subvert free and fair elections? Even as the nation condemns the violent rioters, that other mob, that respectable one, has stayed busy working to remake electoral rules to their advantage in legislatures nationwide. After fueling a phony narrative around voter fraud, many Republican legislatures are orchestrating real suppression techniques that will disproportionately affect young and minority voters. Even before Joe Biden had been inaugurated, Republican-controlled state legislatures were seeking to capitalize on the misinformation that they sowed as justification for rigorous new voter ID restrictions, new limitations on mail voting, and other unnecessary barriers to the ballot box, all of which will reverberate in their favor, naturally, in 2022 and 2024, Daly argues. So Democrats 
in the U.S. House and Senate have a massive proposal to restore at least some measure of ethics and campaign finance reform and election integrity to federal elections. It's called H.R. 1, the For the People Act, the real fight for election integrity, or in the case of the GOP's long and continuing efforts against election integrity. More often, that happens at the state level, where GOP gerrymandered and dominated state legislators are getting back to work following the 2020 election and its ensuing deadly Trump-fomented U.S. Capitol riot. They're getting back to work to move legislation through state capitals in hopes of making voting more difficult, at least for some, preying on the confusion of millions of voters who have been duped into believing massive voter fraud by Democrats somehow flipped the results of the 2020 election from Trump to Biden last November. Joining us now is someone who has been attempting to unrig the ballot box and the electoral process for years. In fact, his latest book is called Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. His previous book on Red Map, the GOP's long and wildly successful state gerrymandering scheme, has a name that I cannot say on FCC radio, so we just call it Rat Flipped. The true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. David Daly is the former editor-in-chief of Salon, now a senior fellow at FairVote.org, where he continues the most important fight of all in this nation, the one for free and fair elections for all. Oh, David Daly, welcome back, sir, to the broadcast for your first time in the Biden era, where all is now perfectly fine again. We fixed everything. It's good to be back, Brad. How are you? Good to have you. Well, you know, if you're a Republican, you would argue that, uh, yes, you did fix everything, David. Um, <laughs> in any event, as, as noted, uh, the GOP at the state level is opportunistically beginning to use Trump's lies about voter fraud to their advantage, though in truth... All Donald Trump did was, you know, take years of GOP lies about voter fraud that they were already putting out there and giving it a national platform. So I want to run through some of the specific efforts that you document in your Boston Globe piece that are now happening at the state level to make voting harder following 2020. But quickly, I want to get your thoughts on another sort of gerrymandering process, Dave. The uh, the U.S. Senate as our friend uh, Ari Berman of Mother Jones notes on Twitter, is a remarkably undemocratic body. Fifteen states with 38 million people elect 30 GOP senators, while California, which by itself has 40 million people, while we just get two senators, they're both Democratic right now, uh, to represent us, uh, he notes that by 2040, 30 percent of America will elect 70 senators, while 70 percent of America will elect just 30 senators. So already Senate Democrats represent 41 million more Americans than the GOP does in the Senate. But it's still a 50 50 body. And Mitch McConnell wants 21 small state GOP senators representing less than a quarter of the population to be able to block laws supported by huge majorities of Americans with the filibuster. Tell me, if you can, how does that logjam, that gerrymandering ever get corrected, no matter what is done at the ballot box? That's the original gerrymander in so many ways. The U.S. Senate, which is weighted 
so viciously towards small states in a way that the founders, if they saw now, would be truly, truly horrified by. You've, you've rattled off the same numbers I would, that you've got a 50-50 body, and yet those 50 Democratic senators are representing about 41.5 million more people. Mm-hmm. And when you add into that the small state bias of the Electoral College, when you add into that the advantage that that bias has given Republicans in selecting Supreme Court justices, five of these nine conservative justices on the court selected by a president that lost the popular vote. When you then factor in the advantages that the Republicans have with gerrymandering and geography, and then it's all the way down from the U.S. House to the state legislative level, mm-hmm. we are looking at an epidemic of Republican minority rule in this country. What can we do about the structure of the Senate? Uh, I mean, I think as much as we are worried about the House in 2022 and redistricting, the real long-term problem indeed is this bias in the Senate. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a terrific proposal by a professor at the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. that would give every state one U.S. senator and then a lot the other 50 proportionately, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, is constitutional according to the way he lays it out. Um, I think that we have to think about um, perhaps de-emphasizing the importance of the Senate and making it more of a House of Lords in Mm. some ways, almost a ceremonial uh, body, and increase the size and the proportionality of the U.S. House. But I think that there's also, you know, another way of, of looking at this. Maybe we simply need, as progressives, to move people to all of these other states and think much more <laughs> creatively, right? I mean, what if what if Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg, instead of lighting hundreds of millions of dollars on fire mm-hmm. with ego-driven presidential campaigns, built a new Silicon Valley somewhere at the, you know, close to the four corners of, of Iowa and Nebraska and South Dakota? Mm. You know, we're a new university. Now, what if we created a magnificent new research university in Wyoming and paid people to go there, and we start to think about affecting the Democrats' geography problem, wow. which in many ways is just as big as the gerrymandering problem. Well, I, I, no one will ever uh, fault you for not thinking big, Dave Daly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess if that's what it takes, I mean, do I have to leave California? I kind of like it here. But I hear you. And, you know, as you say, it's uh, the, the founding uh, father's, uh, you know, original gerrymandering sin. It's made even worse, of course, with the filibuster, where you need 60 votes to pass anything in the Senate. I want to make clear, in case people are under the wrong impression, the filibuster is not in the Constitution. There is no reason that the Senate can't be a, a majority up or down vote body. That's just, uh, you know, an attempt to make things work even slower. And, of course, if you're a Republican, you just do away with the filibuster whenever you want to when it you know comes to Supreme Court justices and so forth. But you threaten the Democrats 
uh, that you won't let them do anything if they get rid of the leg- uh, the filibuster for legislative uh, matters. Anyway, we're going to obviously keep talking about that one for a while, but let's jump into some of the state legislation that you sort of set an alarm off about in your piece at Boston Globe this week, uh, beginning with efforts in Wisconsin, Michigan, and New Hampshire, where, as you note, Republican legislators have proposed reallocating their state's electoral votes for the winner of each congressional district with the other two electors, uh, the two that they get for their two uh, senators, going to the statewide popular vote winner. Now, two states already do something like that, Nebraska and Maine. It certainly sounds like a more egalitarian, small-D, democratic way to do it than the winner-take-all process for electors that we have in most states right now. So what are you concerned about there, David? Well, if every state awarded electors proportionately, that would be fine. But when you start looking at states like New Hampshire that have gone blue in seven of the last eight elections, and you start talking about siphoning votes off there, that, I think, is worth ringing bells about. Um, The proposal in Wisconsin that a legislator just filed today is Mm -hmm. even worse than the one that I wrote about in the Globe. Mm. What this legislator wants to do is not only award the electoral college votes by district, but he wants to give the extra two for the senator Mm -hmm. to the candidate who wins the most congressional districts. (laughs) So by that math, Joe Biden wins the state of Wisconsin in its popular vote, Uh but Donald Trump would have gotten eight of the ten electoral votes. Now, is all of that because of the gerrymandering in states like Wisconsin? In other words, if we did away... Uh, With the gerrymandering, if we actually had fair congressional districts, and I guess, as you say, you know, if we did this in all 50 states, would we end up with something that more uh, closely represented a popular small-D Democratic vote? You know, I've got an even better idea. How about if we give every single person in the country an electoral vote? We could call it, I don't know, (laughs) let's be crazy. We could call it a vote. (laughs) And then we could add them all up. And the person who has the most could be the winner. But well, work with me here. I know it's a well, crazy idea. No, I hear. Work with me. I hear you. But the, the thing is, the the folks in Wisconsin and Michigan and New Hampshire who who want to see reform, who feel that it's not a small d democratic enough system for them, obviously they can't uh, change it on the national level. So they're working on the state level. Uh, <laughs> I mean, That's, well, I yes, I love the benefit of the doubt that gives them. Um, if we want move to reform this system, we have to move to reform the entire system. Mm. Um, And I think that there are ways to do that. We cannot simply allow Republican gerrymandered state legislatures, like the ones in Michigan and Wisconsin, to then turn around and gerrymander the Electoral College. What that does is it just enhances the importance of gerrymandering. It gives the Republicans who have already locked themselves into all of these state legislatures even more power and it drives home just how crucial this is mm-hmm. we're talking about state legislative districts that have been rewired in such a way that it could now take 80 percent of the electoral college votes from a swing state and award them to the loser of the popular vote that's what gerrymandering does. Now, Wisconsin and Michigan both have uh, Democratic governors, so in theory, the, uh, their, those governors in those states would be able to block this sort of plan unless the 
Republicans decide to play the uh, the constitutional card where they want to argue that only legislatures can make laws and the governor has nothing to do with it. And they may try to do that, I suspect. Uh, New Hampshire, on the other hand, has a Republican governor. He might go along with this. Are you concerned that the, the proposals in any of these three states could actually come to pass? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the constitutional hardball that the Republicans have been playing for the last decade plus, you would have to be naive to think that they would not go ahead and make a move like this. Mm. Now, there are currently Democratic governors in Wisconsin and Michigan. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that there will be Democratic governors Mm -hmm. there forever. Uh, The Democratic governor in Wisconsin was elected very narrowly in 2018. He will be up for re-election in 2022. If Democrats lose one statewide election in a competitive swing state that goes back and forth, um, as elections can and should do, they could then force through this change in time for the 2024 election. Mm. Uh, You know, the, the Democratic governor in Michigan... You had a militia there that wanted to kidnap and execute her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, this, I mean, is, uh, this is how close it is in these states. Yeah, I know. And it sort of drives me crazy because <clears throat> this uh, those elections you mentioned coming up in 2022, they're off-year elections. Democrats don't tend to turn out for off-year elections in the same way that Republicans do, particularly when there's a... Uh, a Democrat in the White House. And I remember thinking back in 2010, oh, it's going to be a big year. Democrats are going to understand that it's a, a you know, a, a, a redistricting year. So they're going to turn out in 2010. Well, apparently the message did not get out to the Democrats. And I wonder um, if the message will if Democrats will get the message out to the voters this time that, yes, showing up in 2022 is also going to be important. All right. Let me uh, let's fly through a, a few more of these states here. Georgia legislators after that state narrowly flipped from red to blue for the first time in decades in the presidential race in November. And then both U.S. senators uh, races went Democratic this month. Georgia uh, Republicans want to do away with no excuse mail-in voting and require photo absentee for absentee voters and put an end to drop boxes. Is there any reason for any of those measures beyond pure and simple attempts at voter suppression at this point in Georgia? No, absolutely not. It's, it's pure and simple voter suppression. And can you explain the reason that Republicans are freaked out by secure absentee ballot drop boxes, but that they are perfectly fine with mailboxes, which force the ballots to then go through many more hands before they eventually get to the county to be counted, if they ever do? I mean, what is well, because the... Because they can... Yeah? Because what's, what's they the ostensible can reason? The mail, right? <laughs> yeah, they can slow uh, down the mail, but what is their ostensible reason? What are they claiming is is wrong with drop boxes? You know, I don't think they're in love with mail-in voting or allowing the, the post office as drop boxes either. Uh, you know, there is something inside the heart of the Republican Party that wants voting in 2020 to be exactly as it was in, in 1882, right? <laughs> right. Um it's on a Tuesday because that's a convenient day for farmers. Mm-hmm. And it's between it's between you know the hours of eight and eight in the morning, mm-hmm. um, and we don't live that way anymore. We have adjusted the rules of modern society to match modern times, and there are more of us 
so we need to do different kinds of voting. Um, you know, there have been studies after study after study about this. There is no voter fraud problem. The creation of this myth of voter fraud is one of the things Republicans have done really well mm-hmm. over the course of the last uh, several decades. Yeah. Uh, and it's simply not true. And they use this big lie in order to then justify all of these other suppressive measures that just keep putting little barriers between people and the ballot box. And eventually, you stack enough of them up, and it skims votes away, especially in these states where 10, 11, 12,000 votes makes all the difference to the presidential room. Yeah, and of course now they have a, a larger excuse than ever for the next, I don't know how many years, they're going to be saying, well, people are concerned they lost confidence after the 2020 election. Well, of course they lost confidence. They were told that they should lose confidence. They were told that there was fraud that didn't exist uh, to a, uh, an extent that we have never seen before from the party, from the, you know, the, from the White House itself making those claims. Uh, now, it's intentional. Yeah, it is. Uh, Now, Pennsylvania Republicans, uh, after adopting a bipartisan measure to allow no excuse absentee voting, they were all very proud of it for the first time ever at the end of 2019. It worked very well in 2020. Uh, Thankfully, it came in just in time, uh, given the need for widespread mail-in voting during the pandemic. Well, now you report the Republicans want to roll back that legislation. Um, Thankfully, they have a Democratic governor right now who I suspect would block that correct. But do do you have the same concerns about, uh, well, he's not going to be there forever? I do. I mean, Pennsylvania, like Wisconsin, like Michigan, is a state that is elected. Democratic governors and Republican governors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a close, it's a close state. Um, and what the legislature is doing there now, on two fronts. Uh, for, you know, first on the front of trying to roll back a lot of these mail-in and absentee voting reforms mm-hmm. that worked really well mm-hmm. in 2020 in driving turnout and making it easier to vote in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But they are also attempting to gerrymander the state supreme court which is currently elected statewide. Mm-hmm. And what Republicans have done is they have put forth a constitutional amendment that will be voted on in a low turnout May election mm. to district state Supreme Court justices. Mm. And in a state like Pennsylvania, in which most of the Democratic voters are concentrated in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, yeah. no joke about Pennsylvania being Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with Alabama in the middle. Right. You've got a lot of red in the middle of the state and these two sort of bright blue sections at opposite ends. Mm -hmm. That would give Republicans the ability to take an unfair, rigged advantage on the state Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And that is the state Supreme Court that stood up to the president when he tried to overturn the election results there. Mm -hmm. That is also the state Supreme Court that overturned the Republicans' gerrymandered congressional map that for the first three cycles of last decade handed Republicans 13 of the state's 18 congressional seats, Mm -hmm. even when they won fewer votes. They would get 70% of the seats with about 47, 48 percent of the vote. And this is a case where they're gerrymandering the Supreme Court, where uh, it's it's going to be a ballot measure, a constitutional measure. So I guess it cannot be stopped, even if they have a Democratic governor in office. I'm going to point folks towards your uh, piece at Boston Globe 
to check out what Republicans are now trying to do in Minnesota and, of course, down in Texas, where they are always trying to make it harder to vote, which I think is why they have the uh, either the second lowest or the lowest turnout rate in the country. That is no uh, accident either. That is by design as well. But uh, since I've got just a minute or so left here, uh, David Daly, you know, after playing defense on voting rights against all of these things that we're talking about here, Democrats are at least trying to get on the offensive a little bit. They uh, Democrats now, both in the House and Senate, have a bill called For the People Act. Uh, it provides a lot of long overdue reforms for uh, for voting and fair elections, ending the dominance of big money and, and dark money in politics, reinforcing disclosure and ethics laws uh, for members of Congress. There's a lot in that bill. It's a really huge bill, which probably means it has no chance to pass. But I'm just being negative here. So for now, I don't have time to go through it. But is there anything in particular in that bill that jumps out at you that you like or that you don't like? And how, in any event, is any of it supposed to get through so long as the Senate filibuster exists requiring 60 votes to pass anything? Uh, boy, there is a lot of great stuff in this bill. Independent commissions for congressional redistricting mm. mandated mm-hmm. around the country, automatic voter registration, online voter registration, an end to felony disenfranchisement, an end to voter purges, all kinds of terrific things in this bill. Democrats have got to go big and they've got to go fast because we've just identified all of these huge structural and geographical barriers that make it really, really rare and surprising for them to have control of all three branches yep. at once. Well, they got to go if big. they, they got to go fast. Go now, but they it, might not have this chance again. You, well, you say go now, and by the way, I was happy to see Chuck Schumer is saying exactly the same things. Uh, we need to go bold. We need to go quickly. That's all good. Yeah. But if you have a filibuster, none of this is going to get passed in this H.R. Democrats, Democrats have got to blow up the filibuster in hmm. order to do this, because if they don't the advantages that the Republicans are going to have both mm-hmm. on the Senate map and on a redistricted House map in 2022, they might not see either chamber again for the rest of the decade. And if all of these electoral college shenanigans get pulled off in state legislatures at the same time, you're going to see a big change in the White House map as well. They've got to use this opportunity while they have it, no matter what the cost. You know, I have a feeling we're going to be ending a lot of conversations over the next few weeks with the words, yeah, but Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema in Arizona. They've got to want something, right? What do they want? Give it to them. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, you know, maybe what they want is something that they cannot have because the Republicans are holding it up with a filibuster, and maybe they'll come around and see the light as well. David Daly, always great speaking with you, even greater speaking with you in the uh, Joe Biden era. <sighs> We're all a little a little bit less uh, freaked out. So David Daly, former editor-in-chief at Salon, now a senior fellow at fairvote.org. You can find him on the Twitters at DaveDaly3, that's the number three, and, of course, at fairvote.org. And we will link to his Boston Globe op-ed, Two Mobs Stormed the Capitol, One in MAGA Hats, The Other in Expensive Suits. Dave Daly, always great speaking with you, my friend. Hope to do it again soon. 
Anytime, Brad. Thank you, brother. All right, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Are you having as much trouble keeping up with all of these uh, Joe Biden signings, uh, <laughs> executive orders as I am? Oh, hell yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. I'm glad they're being signed. But boy, it's it's hard to keep up with them. Yep. Uh, but as usual, you do a hell of a job in our latest Green News report. He has 17 executive orders really wiping away much of what President Trump did. President Biden moves to undo even more of Trump's attacks on the environment. The federal government all also owns an enormous fleet of vehicles. And will use the power of the government purse to boost electric vehicles. Plus, court strikes fatal blow to Trump's polluting power plant rule. All of those blows, fatal and otherwise, straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. This back and forth, this must be so weird for other countries. Because under Obama, America celebrated the Paris Accords. But then under Trump, it was like, F- the Paris Accords! Let the planet burn! And then now under Biden, it's like, all right, guys, I'm <laughs> I'm back in the Paris Accords. Sorry, yeah, and I'm also back on my meds. <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, we are sorry. And back on our meds. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I don't know how long it's going to take to undo all that Donald Trump did to the environment in the last four years, but... We're off to a good start. Oh, definitely. The Biden administration is moving swiftly on that monumental task of undoing the damage the Trump administration inflicted on the environment while also launching Biden's whole of government approach to combating man-made climate change. Here is a partial list. The Biden administration announced a temporary pause on all new oil, gas and coal leasing for U.S. lands and waters. It does not affect existing leases, but is a first step to proposing a total total ban on fossil fuel leases on the public's lands. The temporary suspension also applies to new mining approvals and land swaps, including that transfer of lands in Arizona that are held sacred by Native Americans to a mining company. That is now on hold. Good. Biden rescinded Trump's 2019 declaration of a national emergency at the southern border with Mexico, which halts further construction of Trump's border wall that has already damaged the fragile desert environment. Good again. Biden also reinstated the Obama-era federal flood standard, which mandates that the design and construction of federally funded infrastructure must account for future sea level rise, increased flood risks, and other accelerating climate impacts. Good, good, and good. Biden's Environmental Protection Agency has asked the Department of Justice to pause its defense of Trump-era environmental rollbacks in court. The EPA is relaunching staff trainings on environmental justice and environmental racism. On Monday, as part of his Biomedical 
America plan. Biden announced he will direct the formidable purchasing power of the federal government, about $600 billion a year in funding, to buy only American-made products and materials while investing in modernizing infrastructure and climate solutions. And that includes replacing the entire U.S. government's vehicle fleet. The federal government also owns an enormous fleet of vehicles which we're going to replace with clean electric vehicles made right here in America by American workers, creating millions of auto worker jobs in clean energy and vehicles that are net zero emissions. And together, this will be the largest mobilization of public investment in procurement, infrastructure and R&D since World War II. Wow, that's huge. That's a lot of cars if he's going to replace the entire fleet. How many are we talking about here? We are talking about 650,000 vehicles. Biden will also close loopholes that had previously allowed car makers to claim their vehicles are American made, even if only a few parts were made in the U.S. So a lot of electric cars are going to be made by government fiat. Yep. Biden is also hiring climate experts for top positions in every cabinet-level agency. He'll unveil a second round of climate-related executive orders later in the week. Meanwhile, very huge, very good news. A federal court has struck down one of Trump's most consequential climate rollbacks. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the Trump administration's replacement of President Obama's landmark clean power plan, the first-ever standards to reduce carbon emissions from power plants. The Trump replacement rule was so weak that the Trump administration admitted it would actually increase pollution and could cause as many as 1,400 additional premature deaths every year. Of course, that's why he liked it. The court said that the Trump administration, quote, fundamentally misconceived the law. And crucially, it also reaffirmed the EPA's authority to craft climate regulations for a range of sources. The ruling gives the Biden administration a clean slate to craft new rules to control greenhouse gas emissions from power plants and meet Biden's target of 100 percent clean electricity by 2035. Finally, auto industry experts say electric vehicles are close to the tipping point of rapid mass adoption. Thanks to the plummeting cost of batteries, German carmaker Audi became the latest manufacturer to announce it is ending production of internal combustion versions of its most popular car models, including plug-in hybrids, and will focus instead on going full electric. No point planning to build a car that you aren't going to be able to sell. I told you to get rid of those internal combustion cars long ago. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. And if you want those good times, those dreams to come true... Buy American, that's all you've got to do. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure that might be old uh, Joe Biden's prom theme song. I'm, I'm not <laughs> oh, sure. Mean. Is that's that cold. mean? Is that cold? cold? All right, sorry about that. By the way, I, you know, I've been telling people, do not buy a new internal combustion engine car because you will not be able to resell it. Uh, but you might be able to turn it in for a rebate. Uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, the new majority leader in the Senate, uh, had this to say during an interview with Rachel Maddow on MSNBC Monday night. I have a provision that I'm pretty proud of called Clean Cars for America. Here's what it does. It says you turn in your internal combustion engine, you get a big point of sale rebate. The poorer you are, the deeper the rebate, so poor people will do it and get an electric car. 
At the same time, the federal government installs a charger by your house or on the street if you live in an apartment building and has all of our highways have it, so you can drive from right here in Washington to Seattle and not worry about running out of juice. And at the same time, we give some real help to GM and Ford so they can become the electric car centers of the world, not China. All of it done with American labor. It will take every internal, com it, no new internal combustion engines will be produced after 2030, and by 2040 there will be no internal combustion engines on the road. That's kind of amazing. That's pretty huge. That is. Uh, of course, that's just his proposal, whether that uh, comes to pass. But no new internal combustion engines after 2030? Well, that I think we're going to definitely see. They won't. That's new, offered for sale, which means that they won't be taking the old ones off the road. It just means you won't be able to buy an internal combustion well, engine car. Well, he says by 2040, there will be no internal combustion engine cars on the road, period. That would be a very interesting and difficult transition to make happen. You look dubious. I, I am, but you know, I think it'll happen organically on its own because it's cheaper. Electric vehicles are cheaper to run, cheaper to operate, and uh, the battery innovation is happening very quickly. The Guardian just had a story that said that the electric car batteries with five-minute charging times are now being produced. Really? In the laboratory time to commercialize wow. them but it's happening cool all right thank you very much for all of the good news mm -hmm. uh, desi doyan our producer my thanks to my guest today fair votes david daly and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us it is greatly appreciated we are now celebrating our 17th anniversary uh, for a while this week at bradblog.com that's right we are now 18 years old the bradblog is now old enough to vote. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, thanks to those of you who stopped by and keep us in business all of these years by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We welcome your uh, anniversary gifts. Uh, you can also drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the bradblog. That's it. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. And all you Republicans, you Democrats, and you Quakers, I want to tell you that the sun will be shining, the skies will be blue, by American, that's all you've got to do, playboy. Come on and buy American, that's all you've got to do.